0: This is The Law School Show, discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, this is your host, Rama Panford-Walsh. I'm here today with Professor Wolfgang Ulshner, who is a professor in the Common Law section at the Faculty of Law with a cross-appointment with the Faculty of Engineering at the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Welcome, Professor Ulshner.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Professor Alschner, today I wanted to kind of talk to our listeners about the role of new emerging technologies in the field of law, as well as your research interests in um, empirical legal analysis, as well as computational legal analysis. Um, As a quick begin, um, can you please give an overview of your legal studies and legal career up to this point?
1: Sure. So I uh, actually never wanted to study law in, in in the first place. I always thought that I would become a historian because I was very interested in history at the uh, at the time. But then I thought, well, I want to do something that also has some practical significance. I can study history on my own, um, but I wasn't really keen on sort of. F- um, committing myself to to specific field of study yet so I started with a very interdisciplinary bachelor when I was still in Germany I studied international law international economics and international politics in uh, in a specialized program and I was so interested in all these fields that I continued with an interdisciplinary master afterwards uh, then in Geneva Switzerland but then I realized I was becoming sort of a a jack of all trades Mm -hmm. but a uh, master a master of, of none, right? And so I thought, gosh, I really have to get serious and <laughs> uh, take up one profession. And uh, I did that s- oddly while doing my PhD in law. So uh, I was admitted to the PhD in international law and at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. And at the same time, I started a distance learning degree for the University of London which I then completed in three years. But in order to then be admitted to the bar somewhere, I uh, followed up with a master of laws at Stanford Law School, and then took the California bar exam. So it's it's a very roundabout way of becoming a lawyer.
0: Okay, yeah, that is a really interesting path. And I mentioned at the beginning that you're also cross-appointed to the Faculty of Engineering here at Ottawa. So um, what interconnections do you see with um, engineering or science and the law as well in your, your career or generally?
1: Yes, well, I, I, career-wise, I think I was predisposed to very interdisciplinary research and thinking due to this background studying um, not only law but other other uh, fields as well. And it was really at Stanford that I was exposed to this universe of Silicon Valley, all the emerging technologies, and I realized what a powerful tool these technologies um, uh, form for the analysis of law. Mm-hmm. And that's where my interest uh, started and that's what I've been pursuing ever since.
0: Okay, what I know you have a lot of different research interests. Do you have a favorite topic right now that you're, you're looking at?
1: I have a couple of favorite topics. So I, I might just speak about two. One is um, related to Canadian regulations, For a couple of months now, I've been involved in a project that tries to make sense of all regulations that exist in Canada at the federal level. So these are 2,700 regulations. And as you might know, uh, periodically there's a review of these Mm -hmm. regulations in order to improve, in order to cut red tape. But up to now, that has been done in a very sort of rule of thumb or very ad hoc fashion. So Mm -hmm. I I think in 2015 in Canada, a law was passed Uh, that uh, implemented a one-for-one rule so every new regulation uh, that was enacted had to replace or repeal an existing regulation so that the stock of regulations wouldn't increase. But of course, some regulations are there for good purpose so you don't want to be forced to get rid of one in order to create a new one. I thought a much better way of looking at this is by employing data science and to look at all these 2,700 regulations uh, together and measure how prescriptive they are, how flexible they are, Mm -hmm. how complex they are. And so we've been doing that with the Canada School of Public Service. And uh, some of my students that have taken my legal data science course have been heavily involved in that project that's ongoing. The second project relates more to my other uh, core interests relating to international economic law. We have looked at all the free trade agreements that are in existence and have built a search engine together with the Inter-American Development Bank that allows researchers and policymakers to uh, look for content in these free trade agreements. And one of the things we want to do in the future is to use that database that we have created in order to track trends over time. So Mm -hmm. we have just seen the uh, conclusion of the United States, Mexico, and Canada are free trade agreements, mm-hmm. the NAFTA 2.0. And uh, we want to situate that new agreement in the larger practice of free trade agreements, see what is new, what is old, what perhaps amends uh, existing practices, in order to get a better sense of what this new agreement does. <laughs>
0: So both of those projects kind of look at um, regulations on the one hand and trade agreements on the other, um, looking at the language. But is it difficult to get a, a, a sense of, of the kind of the context behind the language in each case? Or, or I guess my question might be, what tool, how do you use the tools to assess you know, how stringent a regulation is? Or, or what's the algorithm that you use to, to assess the language on, on that contextual basis?
1: That's a very good question. The way I think about this is that we as lawyers, we are trained in a close reading of documents. Mm. We like to interpret text. We like to read between the lines. We might see significance in a comma. As lawyers, all these things are really important. But of course, none of these close reading tools or close interpretive tools that we are trained to use in law school are scalable. We can do that for maybe a couple of regulations, a couple of treaties, a couple of cases. But we cannot closely read hundreds Mm -hmm. or thousands of legal Mm -hmm. texts. So that is where what I would call a distant reading of the law comes in, as opposed to this close reading that we as lawyers are trained in. And that distant reading uses computational tools in order to find patterns in large amounts of legal texts. But distant reading and close reading of the law are not substitutes, they are complements. Mm -hmm. So we use... Distant reading, in order to identify outliers, identify interesting um, patterns in our data that we then analyze in closer detail using the traditional toolkit of close reading.
0: Okay, that's that's good to hear. I, I would say that kind of leads me to my next question. So a lot of law students, myself included, you know, when we're applying to law school and kind of getting into the process, have heard, you know, in the news or popular media, that, you know, AI or machine learning is going to make lawyers obsolete. Um, so it sounds like what you're saying is more that um, these technologies are, are complementing or what's your, your, your view on that?
1: Yeah, I think AI is actually great uh, news for for law students because it means that all this mundane and repetitive work that was associated with being a a young associate in a law school, such as compliance reviews where you are locked in a room with millions or uh, or, or at least thousands of emails and you had to determine what is relevant for a particular case and what is not this process of, um, of discovery can now be streamlined and rendered much more efficient mm-hmm. through the help of technology. Uh, you, and many of you are probably familiar with this term e-discovery, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is where artificial intelligence just replaces a task that none of us really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, then frees up time to do the more interesting things that we as lawyers are interested in, like legal analysis, preparing uh, a brief pleading before court so I think it, it creates opportunities for the for things that are the very reasons why we become lawyers mm-hmm. at the same time it also creates new avenues to improve access for justice because new technologies help to bring down costs of doing legal research doing legal drafting mm-hmm. uh, doing document review and that of course then helps more people to have access to, to legal services all of these things they don't replace lawyers all that is being replaced are tasks and that then uh, shows us something that's important and that is that lawyers in order to be comfortable with this more technology intensive future we have to learn tasks that uh, will not be replaced Mm -hmm. or concentrate on tasks that are not going to be replaced by artificial intelligence and that is the very task that as I said, are associated with being a good lawyer. Kind of the critical. Critical uh, analysis, uh, creativity, and so
0: forth. So all of these sound like amazingly positive things, which I think they are. Have you had any pushback um, against the idea of kind of modernizing? So the law has often been characterized as being kind of slow to change. Have you found any pushback to kind of the wider use of these tools?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of skepticism Among incumbents, so lawyers that are uh, maybe in the mid-careers, I think very hesitant because they haven't grown up with new technologies and so they feel threatened by that. At the same time, I think on the manager level and the partner level, there's a a great sense that law firms have to invest in new technologies Mm -hmm. in order to remain competitive because some law firms are doing it and if you don't do it yourself, you will fall behind. Now, for junior lawyers, I think it's a great opportunity because a lot of us are digital natives. We've grown up with technology. Mm-hmm. We we have uh, we don't have this innate fear of what technology is going to do to us. We've seen all the possibilities that our smartphones, our computers now provide to us, and uh, I think we have to capitalize on that. And that will make young associates even more valuable to law firms because their existing staff they might not be comfortable with these right. tools. So those technology-aware young associates are going to make um, all the difference in facilitating this transition to a more technology-intensive future of the law.
0: Do you think uh, young lawyers need to have a more um, hands-on experience as well? Like, Would it be difficult, say, for someone who has a more... um, arts or political science background who doesn't have maybe coding experience or kind of that kind of knowledge of the technology to get on board with these new technologies or do you see it as more intuitive?
1: I see it very much as more intuitive so in my legal data science class the law students that I teach they learn how to program in the programming language are from scratch. I don't have uh, I don't require any prerequisites and I don't differentiate between those that have some prior experience, either in statistics or in in, uh, some of the hard sciences. And none of them, I think, uh, feel that this is strictly necessary because in order to succeed in deploying these new technologies, Mm -hmm. all you have to have is curiosity, Mm -hmm. a willingness to learn. And the way that I try to teach it, at least, is I try to uh, focus on problems that can be solved through technology. It couldn't be solved by traditional methods. And so uh, I hope at least that for for the students it's a very natural process because you want to get somewhere and the way to get there is by learning Mm -hmm. uh, these tools.
0: Okay, that sounds fantastic. Um, So maybe you can clarify something for me and for our listeners as well, um, things that people talk about. Uh, What's the difference between machine learning and AI? Well, uh,
1: both are very similar and are related. So artificial intelligence just means that um, computers or machines can do things that we would normally associate with what a human would do. And one way how this artificial intelligence can be achieved is through machine learning. So machine learning is basically statistics. There are three types of machine learning. There's... Supervised machine learning, where a human trains the computer to do something. So I might tell the computer, this document is relevant, this document is not relevant, this document is relevant, this document is not relevant. And then the computer will identify that pattern and will be able to sift through new documents and determine whether each document is relevant or not. A second type is unsupervised machine learning, where I really farm out this task of grouping together, for instance, documents to the computer. But then I have the responsibility to double-check whether the computer did something useful with it. Mm -hmm. So are the documents really clustered the way that I wanted the computer to cluster? And if not, I might have to change the algorithm. So that is unsupervised machine learning. And the third branch that's not as relevant in law but relevant in other fields is reinforcement learning, where... For instance, uh, a computer learns how to play Go or chess right. by just playing uh, or going through a sequence of iterations, uh, of iterations over, and yeah. then uh, internalizes this, this process. But artificial intelligence can actually be achieved also without machine learning. So one of the older schools that are still meaningful, I think, in law, uh, goes back to rule-based approaches where we are trying to hard-code some of the thinking we as lawyers engage in. Right. In processes. And that's what we see, for instance, in in tax law, where programmers program up the different steps that Mm -hmm. you have to go through in order to file your taxes. This is not based on machine learning, Mm -hmm. but it still mimics the process of what a, a human would ask you if that human were to help you on your taxes. And so this is an old form of artificial intelligence, but nevertheless uh, an important one called expert systems.
0: Right, and so in such a system like you were talking about the the review of the regulations, um, then the responsibility still lies um, with, with yourself, for example, or wh- whoever's kind of looking at the rules determining what's relevant or not in the regulations, if I understand correctly. Exactly. The
1: ultimate responsibility always lies with a human. And that's why it's so important also to learn about technologies in order to understand what is going on behind this black box. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you believe what algorithms tell you without knowing what what went into the production of this number, this recommendation, this Mm -hmm. prediction but I, by understanding what machine learning artificial intelligence is we actually understand where these tools are helpful and where they are not helpful where to be skeptical and where to have trust and so um not only is the uh, um the use of all the uh, insights produced through artificial intelligence the ultimate responsibility of the uh, of the human user but also the 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 transparency of the process has to be something that uh, users have to be have to be uh, concerned about and have to invest in in order to understand them.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess there's you know there's not really a danger necessarily that that such a system could become unresponsive if you're continuously reassessing. I guess that would have to be part of the process. It's not like you can. Uh, write an algorithm and just kind of stop there. Um, I guess you would have to continuously reassess what the outcome of each each iteration would be or each each uh, each version, I guess, of your assessment. Is that a fair characterization?
1: Yes. So iterations and double-checking the results are important, but also just thinking critically about the, the process itself. One of the things I teach students in my legal data science course is dumb prediction Dumb because you just feed in numbers and you will get a result. Mm -hmm. The the fact that you can produce a prediction is not something that is insightful in and of itself. It is only as insightful as the thinking that goes into the design of uh, the algorithm and the design of the workflow is. And so in order to make meaningful rather than dumb predictions, you have to understand what you are doing And that's why one of the other things that I try to teach in the course is to be able to then uh, identify the questions that you would ask a legal technology startup, for instance. What are the types of algorithms you're using? Have you reflected on uh, the data that you're using? Is the data biased? How do you account for that? How transparent are you in explaining what you're doing? All these things are crucial at a point in time where legal technology becomes more available mm-hmm. more abundant and so we have to be trained in asking the right questions so that uh, we don't format the thinking to these uh, these machines or, or, or algorithms
0: right okay i want to shift gears a little bit um and talk about another of your research topics which is empirical uh, legal analysis can you explain that briefly
1: Yes, empirical research in law is, is similar to uh, the uh, the social sciences, such as political science or, or economics, in the sense that you use observations in order to make claims about how the world is. That is very different from what we in law normally do, because law is a normative science, so you, you often uh, talk about how the law should be, how a court got it wrong, or The court got it right, or how the law should be changed. When you talk about empirical legal research, you're first trying to describe how the law is. So, for instance, you're trying to describe what types of clauses exist in contracts in relation to uh, third party liability, um, or you're looking at patterns across treaties. Have they become more strict, more lenient over time? So all these things are really important in order to then say something about this universe of the law. So that is description. Other parts of legal uh, empirical legal studies focus then on um, causal relationships. So if you know that the law has become more strict in an area, what does it mean then for those affected by the law? So, for instance, what, what is the impact of uh, the cannabis regulation? Mm-hmm. So how does law interact with a with the real world and how does the real world interact with, with law? So law can be on both sides of the equation. But the link is always embedded in observations that we can derive from the real world rather than
0: normative arguments about how the world should be. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, How widespread would you say empirical legal analysis is? It it was something that was very, very new to me, and it seems like very cutting-edge and innovative work that you're doing. Empirical work is
1: really a niche in law schools in the sense that most lawyers are not trained in empirical methods, and that, of course, then has repercussions on what we teach and what we research. But it is increasingly popular, uh, especially in the United States and and Canada, where um, Law students and law professors often have an additional degree, either in economics or uh, in in political science, that is a little bit more amenable to empirical research. So it is increasingly important. And of course, it's very policy relevant because while it's always helpful to have legal guidance on how something should be interpreted Mm -hmm. or how a law should be changed, it is often even more useful to have empirical data to say, if we change that law, what is going to happen? Can we draw inferences on past changes? And can we describe how the law has changed in the past? Because they, these types of uh, research approaches then enable us to make evidence-based decision-making rather than just normative decision-making.
0: So a real pragmatic approach to to the law really and its application. I hope so, yes. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, Professor Ochsner, I'd really like to just maybe wrap up with... Um, uh, providing some other students with kind of an overview of research possibilities with you. I know you teach a really fascinating course in the January term and that there might be other research opportunities um, for these interesting questions that you're working on.
1: Yes, in fact, I have uh, lots of data, lots of questions in my mind, but not enough time to explore them all. So I can just encourage anyone who is interested in these types of tools, these types of research questions that I've been talking about to, to approach me. We are also in the process of setting up a, a website called Data Science for Lawyers. I'll make all my teaching materials available so that whoever is interested can learn how to program in in R themselves. Mm-hmm. And I will also showcase some of the things you can do uh, with, with these types of approaches. So stay tuned and uh, get in touch if you're interested in Uh, researching um, both the empirical side of law and the computational future
0: of law. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Thank you again, Professor Alshner, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Rama. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from the Law School Show. Career Advancing Advice,
1: right to your earbuds.